Hazodanau. Yauga fagut guadiao, Hazodanau. Yauga fagut guanui, Hazodanau. Yauga fagut guadiao, Hazodanau. Yauga fagut guanui. Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, the paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmoodlock. I apologize for the hiatus here. I think, you know, sure enough, I can probably only promise uh, about one episode per month, realistically, and then I probably occasionally will have bursts of productivity here and there when I get time, but sure enough, there's just like so much to do. Uh, So with that, let's take a moment here, just calm down, take those big breaths, really let all the air out of your lungs, and then then inhale all the way, right? Just get it all in as far as it can go, and stretching out your muscles in this way is, is really wonderful. Um, have your, uh, let your frame relax, straighten out your back, loosen the tension in your back, loosen your back muscles. That's a wonderful thing to do, right? Uh, it's cold. It's cold here in Tokyo now, all of a sudden. I've busted out different clothing here and, uh, putting up insulation and things. You got to do that. You got to take some time for that as well. But uh, yeah, I have some I have some wonderful material here uh, for us today. Uh, we're getting into modern Japan, the post-war a little bit. Sure enough, this podcast is going to be a little Japan-heavy, just inevitably, because of given my knowledge base. But uh, this is extremely universally applicable stuff, because it's kind of about human nature. It's kind of about, yeah, the, the so-called human nature, right? Marx never considered... Marx never considered. Well, it turns out, you know, of course, uh, he absolutely did consider. Not only he considered, but the ruling class considers human nature all the time. Uh, and what they actually consider is the fact that human nature is quite malleable. It's quite changeable. And the thing that you, the bourgeois ideology, would tell you is human nature is a very recent construct. That's what we can learn from our deep history of class struggle in our paleo-parapolitics on this podcast. Uh, but here in a modern context, I have Ishikawa Jun, who is a modern writer. He is just really kind of a liberal throughout his life. Uh, he's born to a banking family, and he serves briefly in the army in like the, the 20s and early 30s or something, I'm, you know, It doesn't seem to be super eventful. And then he's kind of vaguely against war. Although in 1940, he he criticizes Stalin, which uh, there were a lot of people who were criticizing, had criticisms of Stalin, but they kept them to themselves because they knew what was brewing. And it was the Nazis and Japanese imperialism versus Stalin, right? And uh, no, Ishikawa Jun does not take the side of actually existing socialism at any point, right? He's part of a group of writers that visit the Soviet Union in, like, the 60s, I think, and he uh, participates in this big kind of uh, 
Congress of Cultural Freedom type, Radio Free Asia type, U.S. CIA funded campaign to complain about the destruction of precious cultural artifacts in uh, the Cultural Revolution in China, the Great People's Cultural Revolution, which you can read more about that from Han Dongping. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually the cr the graphs that it is. I, I pronounced it as one thing that I imagined in my head. Um, the the unknown cultural revolution. You can learn all about how the, you know the author themselves experienced growing up with all this new educational infrastructure for the people, and the way that that changed lives. And that really links up with the theme of today's podcast, which is material changes in people's lives. Not just human beings, but whole ecosystems and the health uh, with which they they work. But uh, you know, of course, and and you can see in this Ishikawa June story that I'm going to tell you about uh, a real anti-human uh, aspect of uh, bourgeois ideology. This bourgeois consciousness is is really just an enemy of humanity, right? Um, so I denounce uh, this. There's a, I have the story, The Jesus of the Ruins, Yake Ato no Yesu, um, which has really, like, nothing to do with Jesus. I'm, it's interesting. Um, it's, the, the little thing about Jesus is kind of pasted in there to make it just, uh, prevent it from being just a story about the author uh, slumming it, going to the black market, some black market or other in the Ueno area. And you can still go there and there's still, or there were before COVID, you know, um, they'll, they'll still have some version of it, I'm sure, in the future. But, you know, yatai, kind of little shacks um, for, for drink eating and drinking, you know, with little stools and barrels to sit on and all that. They've kind of preserved that under the train tracks and all of this. You know, it's, it's a nice little atmosphere. Uh, fun, fun thing. That was so much fun. You know, I'm glad that I don't, I don't really care about nightlife anymore myself, but I am so sad for any young people because, of course, that's one of the nicest things about living in Tokyo is to get out and just the, all these little shacks and little um, standing-only little bars uh, in all kinds of places, you know, and you can strike up conversations with people and meet people in in ways that you you can't normally um yeah so one of these one of these black markets and he's just walking he's, he's walking through he's actually going to um on his way to take a rubbing of an ancient stila uh the, the ancient glories of the cultural past you know um he's gonna he's got charcoal and a, and a big sheet of paper to take a rubbing of a stila that he noticed had survived the bombings and everything, and uh, he just wanted to preserve this treasure of the past. That kind of harkens maybe to his criticisms of, uh, you know, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is destroying all the art, China's cultural heritage, and all this that he does later. Uh, but he it walks through the, the crowd, and he just, you know, let me let me just hit you right away with this. So the, uh, the, he's talking about the marketplace in, on a kind of symbolic register for a minute here. The, the, the business of the marketplace is the transaction of beasts, the winners in the game of profit and loss, 
being decided in a single bite. It is a dog-eat-dog world, and no matter how much one creature feeds or is fed upon, the time never comes when either party announces he or she has had enough. No, it appears there will never be a time in which they will lift their heads and momentarily studying the sky decide to take a breather. So I guess that taking a breather is something that he... That's what he is cool enough to do. Um... Right. And, but yeah, the marketplace, like if we actually know the history of uh, relations of production, you know, market relations are very new in human history and they're definitely not something beasts can do. Right. It's not bestial. Exactly. It's actually quite um, an advanced thing. Right. Uh, however, this is, uh, you know, if you read like the reactionary mind or something, that's a core problem of conservative ideology in the age of capital because the winners now the ruling class now is just happened to be uh winners on the marketplace and that is less easy to justify with all the old things that justified the old discourses that would justify uh, aristocratic rule so this is an aristocratic uh criticism of the marketplace isn't it in fact um and then we have this scene where actually what's happening is people are sharing food. This is food uh, mutual aid happening. And he is just totally disgusted by it and, and really gets into his disgust with uh, the masses. A man slaps a pound of sardines on what passes for a grill and lets the fish sizzle. The sardines are already red around the eye and a sheet of corrugated metal is no great shakes as a griddle. Sounds like a George Foreman grill actually. It might work really well. Um, nonetheless, the foul rancid smell that fills the air when the oily fish hits the hot metal, an odor rank enough to turn the stomach of any ordinary mortal, appears only to whet the vulgar appetites of the crowd. And all the more shamelessly, the great unwashed come running, and like flies they swarm over the stall. Yet real flies know better, and fearing the heat of the flame, they keep their distance, content merely to buzz about noisily. They head downwind of the breeze that carries the smell of the oily sardines and the stench of the sweaty crowd. And they decide to settle on the stall next door, alighting atop the dark, round, and uncovered objects that have been set out on the counter for sale. They swarm over them and turn them completely black. Aside from the woman who works at the stand, no one is about. And so then, you know, this is old Musubi. These are um, rice balls that she is selling, and he's really horny for her. He's horny for this uh, proletarian woman or, or lumpen woman. Um, he's really horny for the woman, and then there's this moment where uh, a kind of guard man uh, informally appointed at, to guard the marketplace. Um, so look, again, more independent organization, actually, of the people, um, which he doesn't comment on or... or uh, you know, you, he doesn't. That doesn't factor into his appraisal of of humanity here, uh, for some reason. But uh, there's a guard man who's guarding, and he is kicking out suddenly some figure. Right. Um, the man in his in the boots might as well have been driving off a stray dog. His voice having become a veritable hiss. Words were a powerful whip that he used to lash at his victim. Yet what shot from the torrent of abuse that the man rained upon the ground? Yes, what shot our from, 
What shut out from the stall, or more precisely, from between the legs of the customer standing there, was surely no dog. It was a boy, a living, breathing human being. And insofar as appellations of gender or age may apply, yes, he was male and a child. In short, just a boy. Yet, in point of fact, he defied description. Here was a creature for whom there was no proper name, because the taxonomy of his kind had yet to be invented. It was as though an old suit of clothes had been abandoned by the wayside. It had gotten dirty and foul from lying in the dirt. And then one day, who should come along but some wild and crazy sprite? The sprite took a liking to the clothes, quickly donning them, upon which the old suit suddenly sprang to life. Yes, there it was, a set of rags, and it was standing on its own two feet. Fanned by the breeze, it began to walk about, acting ever so much like a human being, who was out for a stroll. Behold, the boy was as black as the sludge in a ditch, and it was impossible to tell at a glance where the ragged edge of his clothes ended and the flesh underneath began. He was so caked in dirt and filth, he looked as if he were covered in scales. To make matters worse, his head and face were covered in unspeakable boils. The boils oozed with pus that, baked to a crust in the terrible heat of the sun, had dried and begun to reek with an awful smell. Indeed, the stench was so potent that it seemed to reach out and attack one's nostrils. Even those who worked in the marketplace had begun to complain, and surely they had never been known to flinch at the thought of handling anything foul or rotten. Just lovely liberal sentiment here, isn't it? Love it. Fucking A. Okay, so... Um, yeah, here's this boy, and then, you know, so norm this, this story would, without the Jesus hook, uh, it would just be, you know, a bougie, uh, liberal walking through, uh, post-war black market and sneering at all the poors, uh, actually, but, uh, he has this little hook about this boy, he's actually Jesus in some way, you know, and, um, I think that plays differently today, it hits different because, you know, I've talked about this with um, Japanese undergrads as well, in fact. And uh, even the ordinary, an ordinary, your average person today knows a little too much about Christianity, I think, for this to quite work. Um, but maybe at the time, you know, there's things about like Shintoist, um, well, you know, not specifically Shinto, we should be careful. Um, but Japanese um, syncretic, uh, there's a core Japanese idea of the kind of vengeful spirit. So one of the early vengeful spirits would be kind of uh, different political losers, but one of the really important ones is Sugawara no Michizane. And Sugawara no Michizane was a Heian period bureaucrat and uh, Chinese poetry. He wrote a lot of Chinese poetry. This is interesting. Uh, he talks about class struggle too. We can get, we should get into that at some point. Um, he talks about kind of the failing bureaucracy of the feudal um, system, kind of trying to provide for uh, peasants, but not really being able to and stuff in his poetry. But he gets sort of uh, loses out in political battles and he ends up in Kyushu and dies or something, dies in exile. And But then there are earthquakes and storms that get attributed to his vengeful spirit. And so that becomes the, the Tenjin cult. The cult of Sugawara no Michizane is uh, alive in many places around the country. He can be a god, patron god of scholars, uh, but he's a vengeful spirit, you know. And so this idea of a vengeful spirit, or ongyo, uh, is a very common one in Japanese religious history, particularly after a certain big uh, ongyo-e, or a, 
um, a session, uh, fe- uh, mm, a, a ritual, a large ritual session to exercise or to pacify, right? You know, the word is, is to, you know, calm them down, pacify the vengeful spirits of the dead and the losers of various things, right? Um, interesting, not, you know, a notion of sort of class resentment, perhaps, right? Um, although, you know, there isn't, it's, you know, Sugawara no Michizane is no proletarian god or anything. It, it tends to be fellow aristocratic political losers that were sort of afraid of their spirits coming back and haunting us. But, you know, just in general, the, the vengeful spirit is a big idea. Right. And this vengeful uh, sentiment, this resentment arises from class struggle, doesn't it? It really does. Uh, I think the first of those big ceremonies happens in 905 or something. And that coincides with a a transition of the emperor, um, the cult of the emperor from like, I mean, first the emperor is like literally just a military leader. Clearly they needed actually when they try to support uh they send an army to the korean peninsula in the battle of um, pekgang uh when the tang eastern commandery uh takes over the korean peninsula they they have lots of allies with pekje the particular korean kingdom and most of the pekje royal family end up fleeing to japan and living in naniwa modern-day osaka and then also intermarrying with the imperial family so that the founder of the Heian capital, right, um, Kyoto, modern-day Kyoto, the founder of Kyoto, Emperor Kanmu, is half Korean for that reason. Um, and, uh, yeah, because it's the Pekje royal family in exile that just kind of joined the Japanese royal family, right? And uh, but they they fight one military battle, kind of trying to restore Pekje. In fact, uh, the Battle of Pekong, um, six sixty seven, I want to say. But check it, you know, check that. Um, and they lose, right? Uh, but at that time, the emperor has to go to Kyushu to direct the invasion. So that gives a, a sense of the emperor as being actually a military leader that needs to be on the spot and and mobilize people with his charisma and so on, or her charisma, right? There's many female emperors early on, uh, although the modern emperor system really interestingly kind of prohibits female leaders. Um, that's a really interesting change, isn't it? Why is, why is such... Uh, yeah, um, we can talk about industrialization, the bourgeois family. You know, when we when we want to look at, you know, why does patriarchy increase? Is it connected to changes in uh, relations of production? Probably. That's what we would be thinking around here, wouldn't it? Um, so, yeah, this idea, it, it's a core Japanese religious idea of like a, a vengeful spirit or something. So, I mean, I can see that, you know, I get that. And then, oh, you know, religious idea... This is the post-war. Um, there's actually a big question if Japan is going to Christianize in the immediate post-war. Uh, General MacArthur poured at precisely this time when children like this boy are starving to death all in the street. Uh, MacArthur spends just um, fortunes and amazing amounts of money on bringing missionaries over and giving them their Western-style houses and building, you know, bringing them West, their Western, their American car over and shit. You know, how many children died as a result of that? Uh, not going into food aid, right? Um, 
The people's flag is deepest red. It's sheltered off our martyr dead. And ere their limbs grew stiff and cold, their heart's blood dyed its every fold. So lift the scarlet banner high. Beneath its shade we'll live and die. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. Oh, well, I wanted to say, so MacArthur was hoping uh, to Christianize Japan because for him, he was just like a Presbyterian or something, right? I don't, nothing in particular, you know, it'd be more interesting if he was some kind of, you know, Seventh-day Adventist or Mormon or something, but... Um, Nothing so distinctively American or, you know, but yeah, Presbyterian. In any case, he he thought of Christianity as the ultimate anti-communist ideology and just a total prophylactic against communization. And his big hope was that Japan can be Christianized. So he brought all these missionaries over and he founded uh, International Christian University, ICU, which to this day is, you know, in operation and... um, has turned out a lot, a lot of like diplomats and kind of, you know, people active in uh, Japanese American alliance uh, in on all kinds of levels. Right. So interesting history there. Uh, But yeah, this boy um, and Ishikawa Jun is looking at these people and just uh, despising them. Right. And, and why does he despise them? It's because, So look, you know, now that they had lost their way in a land ravaged by war and fire, and they had wandered into the labyrinth of the marketplace that grew out of the ruins, what need did they have to think of the past anyway? It was as if no one had survived from the last century, and no, there had never been an era in the history of modern Japan when people had paraded about smugly, wearing the look of His Majesty's loyal subjects, when the land had been populated by a race of so-called Neo-Confucian gentlemen, who were only too happy to be of unquestioning service to the empire. No, not a soul from that day and age appeared to be alive. They had all vanished, down to every last man, woman, and child. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, But his big thing is that, oh, they have no one to guide them. They have no uh, authority figure in their lives, and and that's just the worst thing. Look what's going to happen. They're just going to be degenerate. Um, Besides, no one had been appointed as the new leader for them to follow and serve. And since the old calendar of imperial events and obligations was now no longer in force, what difference did it make whose reign it was or what was today's date? So just a really, uh, really negative view of uh, humanity. And I think this speaks to uh, a lot of different things. But it's it's a core concern of this podcast, I think, sort of. Um, does, does socialist construction require us to build a new humanity? Is, is building a new humanity possible, right? On the one hand, it is a mistaken notion that, um, there, that human nature uh, is to have class struggle and is to be selfish and and it's to be atomized and it's to be uh, dominating others, right? Uh, That is not 
what characterizes the vast majority of human history. Human beings have been around for 200,000 years. I'll say it again and again. 200,000 years. And although there are lots of rounds of class struggle and, and different things, little slave societies here and there and all kinds of fights and stuff, people kill each other. You know, there's actually among... Uh, extant hunter-gatherer societies there's a, a kind of light attitude toward life and death and uh, you know you don't have a lot of surplus you don't have right these are things that so there's it's not to be idealized exactly but human nature is very different there it's very different and if there is such a thing as human nature it's very very different from what people normally mean when they say Marx never considered human nature uh, however However, um, it is changeable as well. Maybe there is no human nature. It has changed. You know, that, that's your next fact that you'll notice then. Um, okay, human nature actually used to be for 200,000 years. Uh, pretty different from what it is in this big old round of class struggle that is the main, you know, all of recorded human history the past 6,000, 7,000 years. Um, that's very, it's a very different picture, all of that. And it's changed within that, of course, you know, the past 200 years. How different is that? Very, very different. But in general, uh, I would say that when human beings are left alone, they organize, they love each other, they build things, they, uh, right? Um, this is the basic tendency. Uh, and you can really, really see this if you look at anything related to parapolitics, this is where this is really great, and I, you know, I don't always see people use it in this way, but look at all the expense that is put by the ruling class into keeping us atomized and fearful and uh, hating each other, you know, divided along all kinds of uh, very carefully chosen meaningless lines, right? All the kind of branding of people that's done over social media and the different kind of beefs that, that happen, right? Um, you know, there are meaningful distinctions, there are meaningful ideological distinctions, but uh, there's, a there's a whole factory, there's a whole industry dedicated to churning out meaningless ones to keep us confused, right? And, you know, this is just basically Gladio. Gladio. Think about Gladio, the existence of Gladio. Um, it means many things, and the more you think about it, you know, there's a lot of things you should, conclusions you should draw from that. But one that I really like is this is how hard they have to try to change human nature. And that's exactly, you know, capitalists never considered human nature. They never considered human nature, right? Well, they did fucking consider it, and they considered that they need to change it. And they're working hard to change it. This is what uh, you should realize. They're spending all this money. They're doing all these, you know, terrorist attacks on their own people. Um, all these major capitalist countries have done this. This is total historical fact, you know, that some level of it was planned and executed very deliberately uh, for the purpose of the strategy of tension, right? Strategy of tension. If you, um, not just to have, and this was something, you know, you want to think about Japanese gladio, um, look into the three mis great mysteries of the... Japan's National Railroads uh, in the summer of 1949, I believe. There were three different um, strange incidents involving railroad uh, derailments. 
And one of them, the Mitaka incident, was a, a false flag terror attack where they tried to, to pin um, the derailment on sabotage by a union leaders in the train among the employees there, right? But very quickly, they realized in, in Italy, in Germany, in nearly every European country, right? Um, NATO's Secret Armies is the first academic book on Gladio, and there's a documentary version up on YouTube, I believe. So check that out if you haven't already, and you'll learn about how at first they, they planned and executed false flag terror attacks to blame them on communists in order, as part of their tactics, including... Uh, bribing and using slush funds derived from Nazi gold and from Yamashita's gold uh, that was buried in the Philippines, gold stolen from all over East Asia by the Japanese Empire and buried there. And then they dug it up and that became a secret slush fund for everything from the Marcos uh, dynasty in the Philippines to uh, the genocide of socialists in Indonesia in 1965. All kinds of stuff, but also buying elections, um, you know, doing all kinds of black ops in Japan, for sure. Japan, for one, as well, right? Just like they were doing in Italy and Germany. People don't connect this history, you know. There's an interesting uh, series of myths that are believed by various people, right? Um, there's a kind of liberal myth that Japan is the only country that, that didn't take war responsibility somehow or something, but of course... Uh, West Germany in 1955 had a higher percentage of former Nazi party members than were in the government in 1945. Okay, so and they were with uh, they were buying elections, they were rigging elections there with all kinds of secret money and uh, shenanigans, um, so hard and so blatantly uh, to make sure that despite the fact that capitalism had been thoroughly discredited. Uh, people really understood at that time that it was the system of capitalism that led to fascism, that led to world war. This was the cause of it, right? And the, the later mythology of sort of, yeah, we weren't like nice enough or something, or the na Nazism was just this aberration straight from the pit of hell, just suddenly emerged out of nowhere. Um, and it's a, it's, it was a spiritual, some kind of spiritual failing. And in Japan, it takes this kind of uh, um, a real kind of self-flagellating uh, kind of racial tinge where it's like we Orientals always just love our authoritarian leaders and we can't, we ultimately just can never buck authority. Um, we're just constitutionally incapable of it, you know. Um, and that ties into big old, you know, dialectics about sort of about race, right? Um, which the flip side of that is kind of honorary whiteness. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. I'd love to get into that with regard to uh, the works of Endo Shusaku, the novelist who wrote Silence. Um, in Silence, the, you know, the plot is basically lifted from Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory. Uh, but the main character in The Power and the Glory is, is this whiskey priest who's like a idealistic but also very corrupt and venal and unable to ever really muster any kind of martyrly uh, determination uh, in the face of the Mexican Civil War, where the communists are rounding up uh, priests, 
you know, and this is a, it's kind of an anti-communist fable as well in that case. Well, so Endo Shusaku takes that and sets it in the uh, end, the late medieval, uh, early, early modern transition. And you have the, the era of Christianity proscri- proscription. And, uh, but he splits that main character fascinating, into two characters, right? One is this idealistic European priest who is going to try to find uh, Christovan Ferreira, who has supposedly apostatized. Well, he did apostatize, and they want to find out. Can it be true, right? Um, and he's going to find him in the movie, right? Uh, it, he's played by Liam Neeson. And um, that character is, you know, he's kind of like, it can't be true, that's impossible, you know? You can't possibly have kind of Luke Skywalker shit, maybe, actually. Um, but no, no, uh, he, that character is split then into him and then a Japanese um, believer who keeps on betraying the priest out of his inherent uh, oriental cowardice and uh, base, you know, um, what do you say? Um, sneakiness? <laughs> yeah, sneaky, um, sneaky base, uh, you know, uh, uh, obsequious oriental nature makes him just keep on uh, betraying the priest who is um, idealistic and, and stupid in, in his own way, right? Um so Endo Shusaku splits that character from Graham Greene into two, and and isn't that interesting? He's he's doing a lot of sort of like we couldn't, and there's there's a great short story that I'd love to to get into on on here later um, by him that really gets into this. But uh, he has this whole self-flagellating thing about you know we Japanese were not able to do imperialism properly like the Anglo-American imperialism, which is nice and doesn't have a problem and is fine and is not fascist right um we just became fascist because we're like oriental and we have a character flaw or something right we're not nice enough like them uh and we're not sort of free enough we don't have some kind of spirit of freedom that perhaps uh anglo-american imperialism has so you know you can tell what i would think of that um so back to reality though the actual reality of the post-war and i have a wonderful document uh, today. If you've not already done so, please check out patreon.com slash irregnata, uh, and you can find uh, my Patreon there. If you subscribe, uh, you get access not only to uh, all the premium episodes, which constitutes something like half of the oeuvre there, uh, you also get access to the Discord server, and on the Discord server, I'm sharing chapters like this, I'm sharing materials, so you yourself can actually get into it if you want. Um, really study this. Uh, we discuss it on there as well. Further discussions are always happening on all these topics uh, with myself and other patrons as well. So, uh, you know, that's really cool. I, I, um, so come on. Come on, uh, come on there, right? Get on there. It's a, it's a low, low price. Uh, I made it as low as I can uh, without sort of giving Patreon this really high uh, rate, right? Actually, um, it has to be more than $3 US in order to be... Um, so I picked a nice... I don't know. I'm not so into the like whole um, Vampire Hunters numerology and shit, but I think I picked 333. I think the numerology on that's pretty good because we've got threes, right? I know 33 is, is a Masonic and, and stuff, but it's three threes, so it should be fine. It's like the Trinity. So... Um, 
What I got here, uh, Joe Moore. Joe Moore is a great um, leftist, uh, maybe Canadian uh, scholar, uh, labor historian, and his his main book is Japanese Workers and the Struggle for Power, 1945 to 1947. And uh, what I have for you here is a short chapter-length summation of that book, which he did for a collected volume. And uh, what a fantastic story. It is the story of the workers' councils that arise and take control of the means of production in the absence of any other option, uh, in, the, in the midst of a capital strike, in the midst of the capitalists all hiding away in their enclaves and bunkers and country clubs. And the workers take control of the economy and the means of production, and they produce uh, just because they're desperate to, to live, you know. Um, this is before major American food aid is really arriving at all. So if they don't produce, they're, they're not going to have anything uh, through the difficult winter of 1945. The surrender, you'll recall, is in August, and then through the, the winter. They've got to get through the winter, right? And um, there's a period where the Japanese capitalists and SCAP, the Supreme Command of the Allied Powers, led by General MacArthur, or um, GHQ is another term that's used, talking about the occupation. The occupation of Japan lasts until 1952 uh, by most measures. 1952 is the San Francisco Treaty that put sets in place all kinds of, you know, the post-war world. Um, 1952, also the year that all requirements for race are removed for American citizenship law. That's an interesting coincidence there. Um, not quite a coincidence, I don't, I don't think. Um, but anyway, uh, 1945, 1946, you know, there's some important kind of milestones we should maybe go through. Um, basically, there's a bit of an impasse between SCAP and the Japanese capitalists, and they kind of don't, aren't yet able to coordinate with each other to suppress the workers yet. And there's this w amazing moment where um, they, the workers, um, in fact, are, are radicalized the more opposition they encounter. Um, you know, here too, they... Uh, clearly thought that capitalism had been thoroughly discredited. The side of the war that the Soviet Union was on just won. So uh, the, it was still an open question, uh, is Japan going to be rebuilt along lines of uh, a different mode of production, different relations of production, uh, right? And um, it's ultimately, so just to, just to tell the story once real quick, it's ultimately MacArthur threatens military force, threatens to put down um, the workers' movement uh, with military force. And then the JCP, the Japanese Communist Party, um, there is the, the Tokuda um, faction, uh, sort of was, was hoping to keep going with uh, production control, as they called it, Seisan Kanri, um, just workers directly producing right and they they developed a whole economy among themselves this is in the the full book in fact there's a great chart showing how the um, chemical processing plants and farms and railroads 
and you know, all these different unions. They formed. They all formed unions right away. They weren't allowed to have unions during the war, um, but they all formed unions right away. And not only do they do trade unionism very quickly, it's like, oh, well, you know, they try to strike or something, but then they, they face a capital strike or a sit down by the bosses. Um, so then they just get radicalized even more. Okay, we're going to take seize all of this means of production. Um, we don't care about ownership. We don't care about private property rights, right? And there's nobody to really enforce that yet. The Japanese police kind of come around and are like, oh, maybe we don't, cause, but they're, they don't feel confident in really breaking up any of this. Uh, and you'd get this whole economy developing just between these workers' councils, um, production skyrockets, the efficiency of these outfits is much greater than anything with the bosses around, right? We see here once again that, uh, you know, you don't need the bosses. The bosses are parasitic uh, class, right? The, the workers can and did um, make all kinds of choices. They, did, they switched from one product to another. They would, um, you know, make, make all kinds of different choices and, and things uh, and very efficiently operate this whole economy where they're trading among each other. The different workers' councils are trading the commodities that they produce for the commodities that the others produce. They cooperate with the railway uh, union to, to move uh, goods across the country uh, over the opposition of the Ministry of Transport. The Ministry of Transport, sort of the bureaucrats are there sort of, don't do that, you, know, you can't do that. Well, they just do it, right? And they save a lot of lives and they you know, produce, um, they keep Japan kind of running uh, during this interim, isn't it? And Tokuda, uh, the Tokuda faction in the JCP saw revolutionary potential here, um, but it was ultimately um, decided to uh, stand down and the, go with the so-called lovable JCP policy to just try to become a, a um, first of all, electorally viable and friendly and uh you know some a, a party that the establishment post-war establishment in a reconstructed capitalist order would not be too afraid of putting in power and if you do that you can just go you know from there to um to socialist construction right <laughs> um, through the electoral path well you know what does this remind us of you know i think uh any kind of jacobin dsa kind of uh Kind of things. There's a lot of resonance there, as well as with um, the SPD in the uh, run-up to Nazi Germany. The Socialist Party of Germany was trying to do this. Another thing that they did that was very similar is uh, accept a role as just middlemen, just the leader of a union. Uh, but you know, a union in a capitalist production is inevitably going to be anti-revolutionary at the end of the day. They're not going to be about actually changing the relations of production. The relations of production have to remain capitalist for a union to be viable. And so a union leader is always going to only allow, you know, so much. They're just going to try to bargain for better wages and benefits and, and so on. You know, uh, an actual change in the means of production is not going to be on the table at that point. And that was very much decided at the Fifth Party Congress in early March of 1946 of the JCP. Right. Um, but despite that, 
the workers continue. The workers sort of continue to their production control, continue to operate the means of production by themselves um, through uh, 1947, at least, right? At that point, things are really, really put down. So going back into some more detail, uh, a really interesting thing to note is that the first of these was organized at the Yomiuri Shimbun, the, the newspaper Yomiuri, uh, which was a major organ of wartime propaganda run by Shoriki Matsutaro, who's a big old uh, um, deep state figure uh, who, after the war, becomes the head of Nippon Terebi, um, right, the Japan TV, and uh, continues to his role as a propagandist under the, in the post-war. But the Yomiuri, the, the writers and everyone, uh, immediately seize control of the newspaper. And this is the beginning of production control. So that's really interesting. You have actually intellectuals, you have writers um, doing this for the first time. And that really helps to inspire similar actions by other kinds of workers. So that's an example, too, where, you know, it's, you might often have a very pessimistic view. I know I have a pessimistic view of sort of how much help I think that academics can be uh, right in general we are a very spineless lot and we uh, you know you just you can't get within a mile of a tenured position without being uh, totally craven uh, opportunist right um, which which I was you know I'm, I'm so lucky to be uh, to have had my kind of political awakening right about as the ink was drying on my tenure. Um, and I just, up until that point, I was a, st I was a staunch, uh, loyal liberal, you know. I, <laughs> um, there are people in my field who I'm far to the left of at this point, but, you know, I would, I would be s scolding them for saying anything about Bernie uh, in 2016 and so on. And, uh, yeah, I kind of think, I think maybe we have some grad students among the listeners. And, uh, I just want to say like, if I was coming up now, I think like a certain percentage of people really have to just go the rich, Richard Zoga route. Richard Zoga was the, um, I don't <laughs> um, uh, a horrible spy. He was a horrible spy who, who betrayed, uh, you know, the wartime Japanese government. And I would never, um, want uh, to be like him at all uh myself i live in japan and i uh love working in japan and living here and i love japan um so i would never do anything like him but uh you know i do think that uh he's he's an example of a. Uh, he joined the nazi party he was uh had a universal reputation as just a staunch nazi and uh, he was, in fact, a spy for the Soviet Union, and he was able to relay the information that Japan would not be going north. They were not going to try for the oil in Siberia, and instead they would go south and try for the oil in Indonesia. And that was crucial information because it meant Stalin could put his forces um, to the west instead uh, and, and focus on fighting Hitler. So... Um, He's no, well known as a successful spy. Um, so I kind of think if I was starting out now with any kind of consciousness of class and capital and imperialism, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm a pre-modernist, so I mean, it's, it's much even further to the right than most um, fields. But, uh, you know, to even stand a 1% chance of getting 
uh, a career, um, you might have to just become a stone cold Richard Zorga. I don't know. Maybe some percentage of people, if you feel able to do that, should do that. I think I could, I can't tell a lie that convincing. I'm not a good liar. Um, I can only say what I believe. So that's just, that's what I'll be doing. Right. Um, I am what I am and that's all what I am. Uh, so the, the Yomi Uri newspaper production control struggle was the first in post-war Japan. Um, they started putting out the paper by themselves. Circulation shot up to 1,700,000 copies. Uh, there, it was a tremendous boost to all of them and their morale and the morale around the country. People were reading about what they were doing, right? And they were reporting all about this, this stuff, right? Um, an editorial on the, te- the 12th of December, 1945, the day after Shoriki, the boss, right, had signed the arbitration agreement, celebrated the settlement of the Yomiuri dispute and proclaimed a new policy. Heretofore, the newspaper has been the organ of capitalists. It has oppressed the people. It has published articles and- that deceived and has suffocated the voice of the people. Now the Yomiuri Shimbun has been freed from this yoke of capital. We proclaim that from this day, the Yomiuri Shimbun will become truly a friend to the people and an organ of the people for eternity. Well, I don't know if that's quite continued for eternity, I got to say. Don't remember the Yomiuri Shimbun being an organ of the people very recently. I can't remember. Akula! Akula! Akula. Yeah, so then another struggle that plays out is a coal mine, uh, Mitsubishi Bibai coal mine. Um, and the coal miners had set up a union in early November, covering all of the 5,000 or so workers of the Mitsubishi mines. Within a week, the union sent the company a package of largely economic demands that the company replied to unsatisfactorily. So it comes down, you know, it comes down to it. They actually end up, um, taking over production control and labor productivity and total output increased dramatically. Uh... Then they have a wonderful little people's court session where um, a group of several hundred union members sought out and forcibly seized both general manager Goto Taro and assistant general manager Noda at an executive's clubhouse where the two were in conference with other high officials of Mitsubishi's enterprises in Hokkaido. The union members forcibly marched the two through the snow to a meeting hall nearly two kilometers away where the miners sat them down on the stage across the table from the union officials. The workers and their families jammed into the hall, and with that began 36 hours of nonstop mass negotiations, the famous People's Court incident. Soon after the mass negotiations began, the union officials persistently questioned the managers, asking why the company would not pay the workers' wage demands. Noda was backed into a corner from which he tried to extricate himself by an evasive and flippant... Anyhow, we can't pay it. I'm sure is what he said. Provoking a torrent of abuse from the workers' assembly. 
this account of the beginning stages of the people's court by one of the main participants, Nishimura Takeo, captures some of the flavor of the anger of the miners and their families. What's this? You can't pay? The demanded wages? We workers are never going to be silenced. Hey, you managers, you came here to cheat us, didn't you? What about it? Answer. General manager says, that's not the case. Liar! What about today's tempura? They were eating tempura in the, in the club, in the country club where they found them. You feed your dogs on white rice. Where did you get that rice? You are always cheating us of our sake and drinking it, aren't you? Just look at those red noses. They're all, you know, they've been drinking alcohol. They've been eating tempura. They were feeding their dogs white rice, right? Um, and then a lone woman stood and rushed up onto the stage. Composing her white face, she took a handful of something from her pocket. Wanting to say something, lip quivering, boiling with agitation, she began to cry in mortification. Managers, please look at this. It's the guts of a pumpkin. Pumpkin seeds, right? While you were eating rice every day and drinking sake, there was no rice ration for us. We were told it was in order to win the war. The sweet potatoes ran out, and we came to the point of eating this every day, every day, she sobs. Our family was patient with this, and even though we put up with this, right? Even though I couldn't even give my husband something to take when he went to work, she cries. And what of the feelings of a mother when her child says again and again, Rice, I want to eat rice. Um, that would be like, gohan, gohan ga tabetai, uh, which could just mean I, food, I need food, right? Um, voice rising and crying. If you are human, you ought to understand a parent's feelings. And recently, when we thought that thanks to the union, wages had been raised a little, now they say that you will take back the sardines that we have been living on. After all that, are you a human being? If that were all, it might be endured. But what kind of a thing is it that you are snatching away the things we eat, that you are raising pet horses and dogs and letting them eat white rice. The coal mine pit workers are leading more miserable lives than dogs. We worry about something to eat every day, every day, and it feels like we will go crazy over getting something to eat. While I'm standing here right now, I'm thinking about what we will eat this evening. Unable to go on, she broke down in tears. Her heaving shoulders touched the hearts of those present. It was probably the first time in her life she had spoken in front of people. Deeply moved by her own words, she finally broke down completely on the stage. The women in the hall raised their voices in a wail at the sad memories that she had called up. Many of these people will have lost their children to hunger uh, during the war, right? Even before the war, just due to industrial class struggle and deprivation of the working class, right? I, just, I was just telling a, a liberal that I know about this, um, and, and they were like, uh, when I told them, uh, yeah, they found that the, the dogs had been eating rice, and they were like, oh, I bet they killed the dogs, huh? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, those mean communists, I bet they would kill the dogs, talking about, you know, our children can't have nothing to eat or some meaningless shit like that. Um, they were very apologetic, <laughs> and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> I see. Um, I see what you mean. Um, the bourgeois brain is a, a, an automatic uh, anti-communist propaganda factory. You'll just, you know, before you even realize it, you'll imagine, oh, you know, communists. Oh, they must have killed dogs, cute little dogs, probably killing them, probably torturing the, the dogs, right? All the while talking about my children have nothing to eat, some shit like that. Jesus, I can't understand that. This is, uh, and then, so Mitsubishi Bibai workers appeal to the Hokkaido Farmers Unions for a joint struggle to secure food 
for the miners, right? Uh, and they join hands with them. They get Japan's steel tube, and the production control movement continues to spread. Now, however, the JCP was really not in a great position uh, to lead this struggle, to be a vanguard in any kind of way here, um, because, you know, the last real programmatic document was the 1932 theses of the JCP, right, uh, which still really based on the Kozaha interpretation that Japan is, in some sense, not completely capitalist yet, you know, and I, I really think there's some kind of racist thing happening there, um, you know, Japan just can't possibly have really caught up with the West in some way, you know, I don't know, I don't know, there's different opinions out there, so let's have a debate, that debate needs to happen, apparently, still, um, because I've, you know, I've heard people say, uh, you know, they, they actually support the Kozaha interpretation that Japan is not somehow fully capitalist, maybe even today, or was not um, at the end of the war, um, and yet they, you know, the same people will be um, very insistent about the imperialist nature of Japan, according to the Leninist model, exactly how Lenin described it. So, you know, if exactly how Lenin described it, that means you have monopoly capital, that means you have finance capital, that means you have all these things. Um, and, and you have in Europe, you know, we, didn't we just have the, the first royal wedding of the Russian, the Romanov family since the Russian Revolution? Uh, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, the Ghislaine Maxwell's trial is happening right now. The British royal family is all involved in that. Uh, there's all kinds of feudal power that is still around in Europe. Does that mean Europe is somehow not fully capitalist? No one would ever think to say that. Why do we only think to say that about Japan? It's a little interesting, right? Well, um, an objective scientific uh, determination needs to be reached, right? We need to have a debate. Um, and we need to determine, you know, you <laughs> need to reach a determination because this is what happens when you do not because uh, all they had was still the 1932 theses. And so they thought, oh, we need a two-stage revolution. It still needs to somehow become bourgeois. So what that ends up leading to within the JCP leadership is a uh, transition, right, um, the Fifth Party Congress. Um, oh, it's actually February, um, 24th to 20, 26th of February um, in 1946, right, and you have basically Nosaka faction takes over. The Nosaka faction, um, with the, uh, the grudging approval of Tokuda, um, but the Nosaka faction basically says, uh, we just need to do a bourgeois revolution now, so it's okay to just have uh, Japan go back to capitalism. All right, we shouldn't think about having a socialist revolution now. And it ultimately means let's just go back to being, or, you know, we never got to be, <laughs> really, uh, just middlemen between labor and capital and just, you know, get, just, let's just have a little, you know, let's just chill out, you know? Um, just like SPD, right? SPD actually accepted this uh, position uh, under, SPD accepts this position as kind of watchdog over labor, Right, and so everyone is just going to hate on them all the all the more. This is gives all the ammunition to the Nazis to depict uh, Marxism as actually the tool of capital. It's actually the tool of the big bourgeoisie, right? 
uh, these union leaders just, you know, eating their big steaks and, um, you know, they're just, they're parasitic. They are a parasitic class and that becomes the far right critique of them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's like, oh, we didn't, it's like, uh, late the jcp is like a late bloomer they never got to have that in their early stages at all so um they are happy to just do that you know which is it's a poison chalice of course it's a poison chalice and the union movement has been steadily destroyed in japan perhaps a bit later than neoliberalism in general is a bit later in japan maybe 90s to aughts um because i think the countries that the the American um, sort of client states that are closer to the front lines of the Cold War, they were a little bit more nervous about unleashing um, neoliberalization too soon after the end of the Cold War. But it's, it's here now, for sure, at any rate. So, um, yeah. Oh, well, and that's why, you know, that's why I know. So Weimar Republic, it's SPD, and they they make all these concessions. They really become a very opportunist party, um, even though they were quite solid for s certain things earlier. You know, they really contribute to a lot of public debate and public demonstration of the corruption of industrial officials uh, early, you know, in like the 20s, right? It's quite solid in some ways. Uh, but then, yeah, they just really become middlemen, um, and then, but nevertheless, despite those concessions, when the Nazis get in, uh, they round up, it's, it's actually not first they came for the socialists and then they came for the communists or anything like that. Uh, the SPD and the KPD, um, the communist party of Germany, uh, are both rounded up, all of them at the same time, right away. First thing they do, first thing they fucking do. So didn't get didn't do anything for them to cooperate and collaborate right nevertheless um the no saka no saka faction of jcp um decides to collaborate in this way right be lovable jcp and again there too nevertheless um all the elections are you know i don't know um, they sure are getting lots and lots of money to rig the elections, and uh, so I don't, I don't quite want to say the elections were rigged, but um, you know we can. It would be a good thing to investigate, perhaps. I don't know. Um, nevertheless, though, the workers actually radicalize even more to a certain certain point. The the curve of production control, the wave it has yet to crest, right? It's actually sort of in spite of the JCP taking this turn in February of 1946, um, production control really continues through 1947, right, when it, it really starts to get openly suppressed by MacArthur, by the by SCAP, right? Uh, and you get all even more interesting alliances. Toyo Gosei is a chemical production plant, and they uh, deal with uh, management who who arrogantly tell them, I don't care if you employees die. I don't have to guarantee your right to live. Um, and they order them not to operate the factory. Well, they go in anyway, and they operate the factory. They uh, they actually whittled down the workforce. They, they got a lot of people to accept a severance package. Um, and then the those who didn't accept the severance package banded together anyway, took over the means of production, 
and they fucking rocked and rolled. Uh, they sent chemicals back and forth to uh, Edogawa um, Manufacturing, a small Mitsubishi company. Um, and they team up with the train uh, unions to transport their manufactured goods to various places. And this entire uh, economy of workers' councils it comes into being. And that comes to the point of the way that they did this was workers' councils. At the division level, section level, department level, they w created uh, workers' councils, or rodo inkai, or struggle councils, toso inkai. Um, the committee at Yomiuri Shimbun, the newspaper. So the committee at the newspaper was also called a toso inkai, a struggle committee. Uh, and the same name was used in the mines and the chemical factories and the farming unions and the railway unions. And those councils were talking to each other and setting up this whole economy, right? Um, but yes, in the end, uh, through SCAP's imposition of this and the JCP's very um, compliant stance, uh, this didn't really go anywhere. Um, it's unclear if it ever really could have gone anywhere. I don't, you know, who nobody has, you know, they don't have a people's army. Um, so when it really came down to it, they would have been suppressed with military force, I think, you know. Um, but uh, that's the real story. That's what people really fucking do. Uh, that's what they really did in Japan when, in the wake of the defeat, when they had no more authority figures over them. So Ishikawa Jun saying, uh, you know, people who don't have authority figures over them, they're going to just go wild and crazy, and this is, you know, just free market. He uses the word market for that. Um, isn't that interesting? Um, that's his byword for sort of chaotic, um, evil human nature, I guess. Um, so I, I think that would not be quite our position here, would it? Right. I don't think that market itself, you know, or, or capital itself um, necessarily it can be used for uh, just like the state can be used. The state needs to be seized. The means of production need to be seized. Right. And capital needs to be seized uh, by the working class and the, and the working class uh, needs to operate society uh, for its own benefit as a ruling class. Um, and if that happens, then uh, they, one, one thinks, and uh, there are good reasons to believe with, with modern uh, levels of automation and AI and everything, uh, really, we really will reach a point where nobody needs to have a different relationship to production than anyone else. No one needs to have, right? Uh, no one needs to be just a worker. No one needs to be um, the boss who owns it. You know, there's no, at some point, it's going to be impossible to own fully automated means of production, right? And I think that really sort of brings Ishikawa Jun's idea of this boy as a, as a religious figure or a holy figure uh, into focus as well, right? Like we heard those words from the actual workers who were taking control um, and seized those uh, bosses and confronted those bosses in that, that court session, the people's court, right? They, uh, 
have undergone tremendous suffering. And Ishikawa Jun, by, by turning this boy into just saying, oh, he's some kind of Jesus or something, he's some kind of magic thing. Um, I think for one thing, he's gesturing towards sort of uh, the phenomenon of the feral child. So if, if a child is somehow raised by wolves or whatever, um, raised outside of human contact, maybe they're abused, maybe they're kept, uh, you know, locked up or something. Um, they're dark stories. Uh, and, you know, they might not learn language. And if they don't learn language at a certain point in their development, they can have a lot of trouble learning it later, isn't it? And so... Uh, that's the image he's going for, but that cannot be because this boy is supposed to be 10 years old, right? He's supposed to be 10 years old. Um, and one of the things that the boy does as he's being told to get out of there, you know, um, Ishikawa Jun is kind of horny for the, the one girl who's behind the onigiri uh, table. And uh, the boy sort of goes and, and latches onto her thigh, he says. And... Um, he sort of, inter he interprets that as the boy just being this animalistic, he's, he's the embodiment of all beastly human evil, and so he must be horny for the, the woman, just like I'm horny for the woman, right? He's sort of saying. Um, but I don't see that at all, actually. I, I feel like this is, this boy, he's got to be 10 years old. He, he is 10 years old, he said. Um, and so there's no way he grew up as a feral child. This is the immediate months after the defeat. So this boy will have grown up normally. He will have grown up with his family. And what just happened to him is he will have seen his family burned in a bombing in front of him. He will have seen his mother. He'll have seen his father. He'll have seen brothers and sisters, his house burned down. He's injured. He's horribly hurt. He has no one in the world. Uh, He's going to have PTSD. He's going to have all kinds of, you know, he, he's going to have be terribly um, uh, hurt in the most unnatural way. There's nothing natural about that. That's not a person in a natural state. That's not a state of nature. <laughs> Come on. What are you talking about? And, and this is something again and again, you know, capitalist ideology, bourgeois ideology is always sort of blaming its victims for the deprivations and horrors that it itself has visited on them, right? Social breakdown of indigenous peoples and, uh, you know, all the rest of that. Uh, this is a characteristic thing. Um, in all likelihood, that boy, you know, if Ishikawa Jun really saw a boy cling to a, a girl's thigh, um, Ishikawa Jun might have been horny for the girl, but the child, is, isn't he thinking about his mother? Isn't he thinking, he's just hungry for human contact? Isn't he, you know, um, if you had any kind of human uh sympathy in you that's where your mind should go i should think no uh this boy is i mean yeah it's meaningful uh that this boy exists and we should think about um the many many children and uh all kinds of people today who are um just being brutalized by class society capital um during this pandemic in particular, isn't it? And that's why we need to build the kingless generation, and we can do that because human beings naturally uh, get together. They feed each other. Look at that, the, the, the sardine, grilling the sardines, you know, that thing that 
Ishikawa June is scoffing at so hard. That's, this is people feeding each other. This is people getting food somehow, right? People get together, they organize, they stand up. Uh, they defy authority. They defy uh, the power of the working class. Uh, sometimes even despite a lack of leadership from people who should be uh, acting as a vanguard to them in that moment, right? Even despite, uh, I think, pretty mistaken analysis about the situation, isn't it? So this is my hope. This is where I find hope, I find, uh, and, and strength, you know, strength to go on. I think that this, th- these people can do this. People do this. This is, this is what human nature actually is, um, right? And it is, it is much easier to simply uh, be a vanguard to that, encourage that. You know, you can reach out, uh, encourage that human nature in anyone that you can, anyone that you see, make connections, bond together, solidarity, solidarity. So with that, I'm Fergal Schmudlock. I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Hold the fort, for we are coming, union men be strong. Side by side we battle, onward victory will come. We meet today in freedom's cause and raise our banner high. We join our hands in union strength to battle and to die. Hold the fort, for we are coming, union men be strong. Side by side we battle, onward victory will come.